You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Professor Seyfried, man, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Joseph. It's a pleasure to be here. A uh, pleasure to have you here. Um, so I'd be, as I was kind of telling you off here, I've been fascinated with your work into um, uh, cancer as a metabolic disease. Um, I'm hugely interested in this topic. And I think the perhaps kind of just a, a very, very simple place to start is perhaps let's take your, I guess, from the textbook up. What is cancer? Well, you know, um, many people have asked me that, and I, I give you the textbook definition of what cancer is, which is uh, cell division out of control, dysregulated cell growth. And, um, you know, when you I teach freshman biology and I teach ad, ad, advanced cancer biology to graduate students and seniors, and the textbooks said, you know, cancer, what is cancer? Cancer is cell division out of control, dysregulated cell growth. Um, and that's the definition. Uh, we call it neoplasia, neoplastic cells, cells that are that are uh, cancerous, dysregulated in their cell growth. The process of carcinogenesis, how, how, how dysregulated cell growth actually occurs. What are the processes that, that go on with this? And um, if, you can see people have written all these very elaborate papers like the hallmarks of cancer by uh, Hannah Han and Weinberg. You know, um, they go through all of the different scenarios of, of the downstream and integrated aspects of what, of what cancer is. But by and large, it's cell division out of control, which leads to then a destabilization in the micro environment. The host responds to this group of cells that are out of control, uh, unable to control the growth. And as the result of this, these, these cells become more and more aggressive. And at some point they may spread, which is called metastasis, the metastasis. Um, and that's another whole area of research, how cancer cells metastasize and spread through the body. So you have major areas of interest, the vascularization in the cancer, uh, why they don't undergo programmed cell death, uh, what's responsible for their dysregulated, why are they growing out of control? Um, you know, all, all of these kinds of things, uh, why their blood, well, how they induce abnormal blood vessels. Uh, and, and people study all of these different kinds of things. And of course, their disturbed energy metabolism is another area. So all of a sudden, these, these particular areas become more and more and more elaborate. So people become deeper and deeper into these different hallmarks. Um, the problem of course, is that we've been doing this now for 50 years and the only thing we get from it is more cancer. Uh, the more money we spend for cancer research, the more cancer we seem to get. And uh, so that tells us that we're, we're probably not on the right track for whatever whatever's being done. 
Well, it's interesting because I looked on the Cancer Research UK website and they they publicly document on there that in 2021 to 2022, they invested 388 million into cancer research. And clearly, cancer has got a lot of global attention. And I suppose within good reason, too, because this is a terrible, terrible, terrible disease. Um, but I suppose if you look through the survival rates of various different cancers, uh, there are some, particularly with very, very poor outcomes, particularly for the more complex types. Um, so why is cancer still so pervasive, despite, I guess, the mass funding put into it? Um, there's, I think, one one main reason. Um, there's always many, and we can, you know, ferret out each one. But the main reason is the theory under which the disease is viewed is incorrect. Um, and uh, when the theory of of, of the explanation, you know, we, we we develop theories based on facts, and a, a theory is supposed to allow us to get a better uh, understanding of the concepts. Um, and when the theory is incorrect, you know, you could be fuddling around for quite a long time. And um, just to give you a, a, an example, uh, for thousands of years, uh, our members of our species thought that the Earth was the center of the solar system. And this was a, a theory supported and strongly supported by the, the Catholic Church. Uh, you know, this was the, 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 the way it is. Earth is the center of the solar system. But it took it took uh, the work of uh, of Copernicus, Galileo, and Kepler, uh, with meticulous measurements, to show that no, no, we we made a mistake here. It, it, the sun is the center of the solar system, and 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 it took it took decades uh, for the the people in power to accept that information. But that's the difference. Uh, you could not account for the movement of the celestial bodies accurately when you had the Earth in the center of the solar system. So epicycles were constantly being created to try to account for the movement of the planets and the stars and all these kinds of things. And then everything made sense once you put Earth, the sun in the center of the solar system. All, all of the trajectories made sense. Galileo used the telescope to clearly measure angles and things like this. And then everybody goes, oh yeah, yeah, I guess that I guess that's right, and uh, and we're now in the same situation with with cancer. Uh, the field thinks cancer is a genetic disease, and most of the therapies and research around the disease focus on gene mutations and this kind of thing. And it's it's not, those are all downstream epiphenomena. They're 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 peripheral to the real issue. Uh, the real issue is destabilized energy metabolism controlled by the organelle called the mitochondria. And Otto Warburg had known this and pointed it out many years ago, in fact, the last century. But he was pretty much thrown under the bus uh, when people discovered DNA as the genetic material by Watson and Crick in 1953 and others. And then everybody ran off uh, in, in a herd mentality, uh, chasing genes. And, we're, and here we are today uh you know 60 years later uh, uh stuck in the same place spending billions and billions of dollars trying to work out epicycles of therapies that don't really work as well as they should so uh we're back in the same no not much different from uh, putting the earth in the in the center of the solar system right now we have the the gene in the center <laughs> the center of the cancer problem 
And until you put the mitochondria in the center, uh, you're going to find out everything is going to make a hell of a lot more sense and you're going to get much more bang for your buck and managing these care. We can drop the death rate by 50% in five or 10 years by just not understanding the, the correct theory underlying the dysregulated cell growth. So predominantly the current view is that cancer is caused by uh, genes. Um, and you mentioned that that is kind of downstream from what you view as the cause, which upstream is uh, a dysregulated metabolism, uh, mitochondria. Yeah. Could you just clarify that, please? Yeah, yeah. So in, in uh, uh, all of our cells get energy. And most of the energy comes from oxygen. When we breathe oxygen, oxygen serves as an acceptor of electrons in a highly, highly, highly efficient system, uh, producing ATP. ATP is the currency of energy within, within the cell. Without ATP, things don't grow, can't live, okay? So, um, and that's through uh, oxidative phosphorylation. As I always tell everybody, you're breathing, I'm breathing, we're breathing because we need the oxygen to keep us focused. Our eyes need energy. You need to hear what I'm saying and understand. I need to look at you and hear what you're saying. All of this requires energy on the part of our nervous system. All right, so um, so it, it, how do you know uh, what I'm saying? Because let's if, we, if you and I just, or if one of us drank cyanide right now, uh, we would be dead within, within a minute uh, and you wouldn't be able to hear, see, or do anything. All energy systems in your body would be shut down completely. Why? You have no energy, all right? No energy means equilibrium. That means death, <laughs> you're right? Okay, well, the interesting thing about a cancer is that cyanide doesn't kill cancer cells. Cancer cells can live without oxygen. Okay, so they're making energy without oxygen. All cancer cells make energy without oxygen. Warburg clearly showed this, and we validated what Warburg said. We take cyanide and we pour cyanide on cancer cells. They're fine. They don't die from cyanide. You give it to a mouse, the mouse is dead instantly. But the cancer cells from the mouse don't, don't respond to cyanide. You can grow them without oxygen, very, very low oxygen. They're fine. They're growing fine. And, and we see ATP. We measure the light. We know they're making energy in the absence of oxygen. So how do you make energy in the absence of oxygen? And this goes back to ancient fermentation pathways. Fermentation is energy without oxygen. Lactic acid fermentation, succinic acid fermentation. These are the ways cells existed on our planet before oxygen came into the atmosphere 2.5 billion years ago, approximately, right? There were living things then. How did they get energy? There was no oxygen. They fermented energy without oxygen. Cancer cells fall back on these ancient heirloomic pathways and generate energy through these. All of our cells have these fermentation pathways. The issue is, is that these pathways pass off the metabolites to the mitochondria to generate energy very, very efficiently. So when the mitochondria become gradually dysfunctional over time, chronic disruption, the cells transition back, as Warburg said, onto these fermentation pathways, and they can live without oxygen. So then you simply ask, okay, they're dry, they're, a, ATP is coming from ancient fermentation pathways. What are the energy? Where do they, so you say, well, what can be fermented? What can generate? What are the fuels that a cell could use to generate energy through fermentation? And Warburg knew one of them was glucose, the sugar glucose. 
So glucose is one of the fermentable fuels. You can make lactic acid without oxygen using glucose in a fermentation mechanism. But we have also found another one, amino acid glutamine. That can also be a fermented. It's called amino acid fermentation. Warburg did not know about this. We have now documented amino acid fermentation. So the two fuels driving the ancient fermentation pathway are glucose and glutamine. They allow the cancer cell to survive in, in these hypoxic environments, acidic environments, fermenting, okay? So and unless you target those two fuels together, it's going to be hard to kill cancer cells. I mean, sure, you can irradiate and poison somebody to the inch of their life, and then you find that they kill the cancer cells, but you almost kill the person as well. And you have all these adverse effects. People go bald, their gums bleed, they have all kinds of problems. But you're trying to, why should that happen if, you're, if, you, if these cells can't live without fermentation? Just pull the plug on their fermentation while transitioning the whole body over with fuels that cannot be fermented, like fatty acids and ketone bodies, they cannot be fermented, they're non-fermentable fuels. So the, the, the management of cancer, step one, transition the whole body, lower the blood sugar, elevate ketones, in the transition, and then go after the, ferment, the amino acid fermentation strategically with small doses of glutamine targeting drugs. So this is the plan. This will be the plan for managing cancer as soon as people come to realize what I'm saying. I'm kind of imagining it as if, uh, you know, a, a, a typical oncologist from a random hospital that I plucked in the UK was here. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the treatments that they would likely be promoting for this would be things like surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, et cetera. Um, but I'm just interested to know perhaps yeah, uh, in your mind, how effective are those surgeries in comparison to, for instance, the approach that, that you were talking about? Well, uh, that's an important, very important question because they all could be, they all could be far more effective than they are right now. Um, when we view surgery, you know, surgery can absolutely cure cancer. If, if you can debulk all of the cancer cells and they're all localized and they haven't spread around, but the situation is the following, uh, oftentimes, and it's not, let's put it this way. It's not insignificant biopsies and surgery done at the wrong time inappropriately have the uh, risk of spreading cancer cells around the body. So you say, oh, I got rid of the tumor. And then all of a sudden, six months later, you got lesions somewhere else. Mm. That, that came from either the biopsy uh, or a surgical procedure that was done uh, before, before you put the tumor into a dormant state. Uh, the tumor has got a, kind of an inflamed mass, um, at least the solid tumors are. Uh, blood cancers also rely on the same two fermentable fuels, but they're, they're in a, they're in a, a liquid environment. Um, uh, to, a, to a large degree, but not to a total degree. But, but when you have a very angry, inflamed mass, and then you try to go in there and debulk it, or even take a biopsy of it, or whatever you do, um, you, you, you run the risk of, of, of spreading things, because it, it, the fragments of the tumor will get into the bloodstream, even in tiny, tiny amounts. And those cells then, in time, uh, will have an opportunity to survive. So when I say we have tools, um, what we like to do and what we are encouraging oncologists to do 
is when the when the tumor is first uh, detected, whether it's by a PET scan or some image. Non, we like non-invasive imaging, things that you can see uh, that there's some mass there. You don't really know much about it. Um, but why don't you take the patient and put them into a state of metabolic therapeutic ketosis? And what we find is that the inflammation goes down massively. Tumor cells start to die, and, and the borders, the margins of the tumor become sh very sharp, and the tumor shrinks. Now, the surgeon would have a much greater opportunity to completely debulk the mass without running the risk of spreading it uh, around. So uh, that's how surgery could be significantly improved. We also know that in some radiation therapies, uh, the tumor deprived of its fermentable fuels. One of the things that makes radiation uh, ineffective sometimes is this terrible fermentation. The hypoxia around the tumor makes the radiation beams less effective. So if you remove the hypoxic microenvironment, the radiation would now have a much greater opportunity to, to do its job. And same with chemotherapy. You know, we, we high dose these poor folks to the point where they're, uh, you, you give them enough chemo, just you're hoping to kill the tumor, but not kill the patient. We can downsize significantly the amount of chemo that we need to give these patients. If the tumor cells from metabolic therapy are hanging on, they're trying to get energy, but the energy sources are being so restricted. These cells now become extremely vulnerable to low dose chemotherapy. So, so the whole process of managing cancer flips around to be highly, much high, more highly successful with much less adverse effects to the patient once you understand the fuels that these tumor cells are using to grow. And we know immunotherapy doesn't work for a lot of people because of the inflammation and acidification of the microenvironment. So again, they say, oh, immunotherapies, if you have this acidified microenvironment, they don't work. Well, get rid of the damn acidified microenvironment and then try your immunotherapy, right? <laughs> but the problem is if they all think this is a genetic disease having nothing to do with that energy metabolism, they make these mistakes and they continue to, to do all this crazy stuff and, and not within the best interests of the patients. So once you understand the biology of the disease you're working on, evolutionary biology. You have to understand how you put all these dots together. Then you're going to be you're going to still be doing the same things with less than optimal outcomes from the, the tools you're using. Yeah. And I think this would perhaps be a great place for us um, to perhaps start talking about metabolic therapy. Um, because I got a, a good amount of questions based on what you said. But before we go any further, let's perhaps you know, tell our guys exactly what we're talking about instead of them going away and then coming back. So when you're talking about metabolic therapy, could you kind of give us an overview of what you're talking about today? Yeah, so um, we're, we're targeting the metabolic disturbance uh, that is expressed in all or most cancers. And what I, what I mean by that is I have looked carefully at electron micrographs from studies that have been done over the decades and in all the major cancers, we see damage to the structure, number, and function uh, of the mitochondrion. That is the organelle that generates energy through oxygen, ATP synthesis through oxygen. So we know that all the major cancers uh, are having a problem. And then, as Warburg said, they have to compensate with a fermentation mechanism. So metabolic therapy is designed to uh, restrict the, the fuels that are driving the fermentation and enhance the normal cells of our body with fuels that are 
super capable of enhancing oxidative phosphorylation, which is the ketone body. So fats are mobilized in the body, uh, in the liver. It's like putting a long branch in a wood chopper and it chops it up to these smaller pieces, which are water-soluble lipid breakdown products, which we call ketone bodies. And the ketone bodies then enter in all cells that have normal and functional mitochondria and generate energy even more efficiently than glucose and other, and other fuels. So this is a, a really, we call it a super fuel, the ketone body. Interestingly enough, the tumor cell cannot use this highly super fuel because it has defective oxidative phosphorylation. How do I know? Because I looked at the structures of the mitochondria and the tumor cells and they're broken. Structure determines function. This is an evolutionarily conserved principles in biology. If the structure of the organelle is not is, 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 is abnormal, the function of the organelle is going to be abnormal. What is the function of the organelle? Make energy through oxidative phosphorylation. It can't do that because it ferments because it can't do that. So now we know structure determines function. We understand that the tumor cell needs fermentable fuels and cannot metabolize non-fermentable fuels. So we've identified metabolic therapy means I am pulling the plug on the two fuels that are absolutely required for uh, driving that. You have to wait for that thing to, to, to stop. I'm sorry, I let, let it, didn't, didn't manage it. Didn't pull it off the hook, but that's all right. That's so good. That's Every, so good. Everybody's calling me to figure out you know, how they're going to do metabolic therapy. So I'm <laughs> you right now. So um, metabolic therapy is a different kind of a strategy. It takes advantage of the of the energetic insufficiency of the of the tumor, exploiting that weakness to uh, reduce the size of the tumor, and in many cases simply kill it. Uh, the cells up and die. Um, uh, now uh, targeting the glutamine. Uh, there's no diet that people always say, what do I have to eat? They're tar No, no, no. Uh, you, uh, actually, there is one diet. It's called water-only fasting. Don't eat anything. <laughs> people say, do you have something better for me? <laughs> but, but no, uh, Cahill already showed that if you do water-only fasting for 14 to 21 days, blood glutamine also goes down besides blood sugar. Uh, and what I would love to ask is metabolic therapy in and of itself, could that be a cure or would it have to be used in conjunction? You know, yeah, I, you know, the, the word cure is a provocative term. Everybody, what do you do? Well, we're trying to cure cancer. Uh, why don't you try to manage it? Can you manage it? Uh, well, we really want a cure. Okay, how about if the management lasts for most of your life? Um, uh, we don't know. Um, I don't like to use the term cure. I like to term, use the term effective management. Right. Uh, whether that means a cure or not, I don't know, because how do we know that someone was cured? Like you're a young man, you know, God forbid you get a, a lung tumor or a colon tumor or something like this. And you don't, you go on metabolic therapy and you live to be 97 years old and you die from heart failure. Um, well, someone could look at your, your corpse there and say, Hey, you know, that guy actually was cured from his cancer. He didn't die from it. <laughs> But you know, we 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 cured a dog, uh, and how do I know? Because um, uh, and published the paper. People want to read uh, the paper on the mast cell tumor on the dog's face. We put him on a metabolic therapy, uh, and the tumor uh, gradually degraded over a few month period. Uh, when the dog was seven, it was a pit bull 
and the tumor grew for two years on his face, got big on a, on a vegetable diet, mostly. It grew bigger. Then the, the dog parent switched it over to a raw meat bone-in kind of thing with, uh, with fish oil and some raw eggs, cut the calories way down. And within a few months, this tumor disappeared. Um, the dog lived to be 15 and a half years of age. The tumor never returned. And the dog died from heart disease at, at, at 15 and a half years of age. So he was clearly cured of his cancer. Uh, I, I, there may be others out there, but, but you know, the problem is I, we haven't done metabolic therapy long enough to know if, people, if, if uh, the, the remission of the tumor is continuous. Now, the other guy we have is an Englishman, uh, uh, Pablo Kelly from Devon, England. Uh, Pablo was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, very deadly brain cancer in 2014. Yeah. And he's been on the news telling everybody, English newspapers and things like this. Um, when he was diagnosed, he chose no radiation, no chemo, no steroids, none of this, no surgery. Uh, for a glioblastoma, is like a very deadly tumor. And they said, you're going to be dead in nine months. He says, I'll roll the dice, take my chances. So uh, um, he did metabolic therapy and he's still... A, a, he, he, oh, you know, they all got angry with him. He said, you can't do that. They got angry. And he, he said, well, I'm doing it. And um, so he went on metabolic therapy. The tumor uh, continued to grow very, very slowly. It was considered inoperable when he was first diagnosed. Uh, by three years, it had continued to grow, but indolent. Then he had it surgically debulked. The neurosurgeon said, hey, this tumor is now no longer inoperable. Maybe we can operate on it now. And they took it out, but it continues to grow. He has had two debulking surgeries. He's out nine years now. And he has, he's married with two kids there. And uh, he still has the tumor, but it's indolent. Um, so he keeps it under control by his diet and lifestyle. Um, will he, how long will he make? All I know is that for anyone with a glioblastoma to live nine years is, is extremely rare. Yeah. Extremely. He's got like a 1%. Nor, most people are dead within two to three years. And, and that comes a large amount, not only from the tumor being bad, but the irradiation of the brain in a tumor frees up massive amounts of glucose and glutamine. The two fuels that drive the fermentation of the tumor are created in large part from rapid surgery followed by radiation, chemo, and steroids. So the very process of trying to help the patient almost guarantees their death certificate in, in, that, in that type of cancer. So because I, we understand the biology of the disease. When you understand the biology of the disease, some of the things we do to these poor folks makes no sense at all. And is it difficult to, for instance, get, say, ethical approval on a study of this kind? I mean, is, is that perhaps, is there sufficient empirical data in this field or, or is more research needed to be done? Well, you know, nobody's... Um, yeah, it's a it's a very important thing. You know, I, okay, so let's think about that question for a minute. Is it ethical to do metabolic therapy on someone with a glioblastoma where it's almost a considered a fatal diagnosis, a terminal, just at the terminal diagnosis? Um, and then you use radiation and in a surgery, you can do surgery is essential, but you use radiation and chemo that frees up massive amounts of the two fuels that drive the beast. Is it ethical to do something like that? Um, I consider that immoral. 
um, uh, so, and you're then you're saying to me, oh, well, let's take a, is it ethical to pull the plug on the two fuels that drive the, the, regu- the dysregulated growth? Is that ethical? <laughs> 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 what do you think of that? <laughs> yeah, is it, I, I, no, yeah. Is it, listen, is it ethical to give the patient <laughs> high dose steroids which are known to raise blood sugars into the range of the diabetic. Okay. So when you irradiate somebody's brain, the the brain gets warm and inflamed. And then you give high dose steroids to to reduce the inflammation. And that raises blood sugar to very high levels. The fuel that we know the tumor cells absolutely have to have to grow dysregulated. Is it ethical to give someone high-dose steroids that has a brain tumor? Well, we have to because we irradiated his brain and it's getting hot and swelling. And then we, why are you irradiating the guy's brain in the first place? <laughs> it's immoral to do something like, forget about the ethics. you know. So uh, once you understand the biology of the problem, a lot of what we do um, makes absolutely no sense. I was just wondering, is it actually from a practical perspective? Yeah, is well, it actually you know, here's, difficult? Here's, to... here's, why don't you inter- Why don't you get some uh, oncologist on, and ask him to uh, to justify why his treatments are creating the, uh, the environment that will make these tumors rage back uncontrollably? What are you doing? How do you explain why most of the stuff you're using doesn't work? Oh no, it works real good. Yeah, for what? Three or four months. You know, uh, um, you bring those guys on, start asking them these kinds of questions and see how they, see what their response is. I would love to kind of um, perhaps pick up on some, I guess, of the common rebuttals to metabolic therapy that I was reading online. And uh, for instance, I read that the American Cancer Society, they urge patients not to seek treatment with metabolic therapies, um, citing a lack of evidence. Um, why, why do you think that perhaps, you know, what was their kind of rationale? Okay, for that? okay, okay. Let's let's think about that for a minute. Lack of evidence, right? I've published all these papers, uh, myself and others, not just me. And we're showing that, the, and War, out of Warburg, okay? Nobel Prize winner, one of the giants in the, in, in the field. Um, he had massive evidence to support what I'm saying. I have evidence to support what Warburg, where, what do you mean lack of evidence? What kind of evidence? What is the, what is the evidence? Is it scientific evidence? <laughs> or is it ideological dogma that you're that you're concerned about? And what's going to happen if we do a clinical trial the way I think it should be done, and the outcome is really, really much better than what was is presently being done? Are we are we say, well, I can't believe that. Therefore, we must stick with what we think should work. But I said, what about all these guys who are alive who are doing really well and they were supposed to be terminal? Oh no, we, we have to ignore their existence on the planet. And we have to stay with what we what we think we should be doing. That's called ideological dogma. And uh, they think the cancer is a genetic disease and you can't change their mind about that because they have already invested billions of dollars in these therapies, all based on this uh, uh, this this theory that's incorrect. So you're 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 you're, you're stuck. OK, so uh, people say, well, uh, um, there's no clinical trials on it. Well, why the hell don't you do the clinical trial and get the data? Right? Oh, well, I don't know about that. Who's going to pay for the clinical trials? Yeah. Well, oh, you mean you're telling me we got to put this guy on a calorie restricted diet, bring his glucose ketone down, and then we monitor his tumor? And what happens if the tumor goes away? What are we going to do? 
<laughs> God forbid. I didn't have enough chance to study this guy. His damn tumor went away. <laughs> You know, or it's it disappeared for a while. Where did it go, man? Where do you think that tumor went? You know, <laughs> what do you think? It just flew out of his head or off? His <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, oh no, we can't we can't do what what we're saying here. That would be a disaster. So uh, what what we what we have to do is we have to move into the situation with a hybrid thing, um, because you know I I've talked about this to a lot of. Uh, IRB, a lot of my colleagues can't get it through the institutional review boards. They don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole because if it works, man, what, what, what the hell are all these other guys going to do? You know, so, um, uh, but, you know, always think of the patient. Think of the patient. Why should we sacrifice all these poor good folks uh, mm. for a profound lack of knowledge on the biology of the disease they're treating? You know, it's not working, man. Look at the data. It does not work for brain cancer, at least. You get advanced lung cancer. Man, it's tough. Pancreatic cancer. Breast cancer in the United States has now replaced heart disease as the number one killer of women. You know, something we, we're not doing it right. What are we doing wrong? Okay. We're not viewing this disease as a metabolic disease. It's a metabolic disease driven by an abnormal energy metabolism, and the cells are dependent on fermentation, glucose and glutamine fermentation. What, who in the world right now, what clinical uh, center, whether it's in the UK, the United States, Germany, or anywhere, is simultaneously targeting glucose and glutamine while transitioning the body over therapeutic ketosis? And the answer is nowhere. Are doctors allowed to talk about these alternative uh, treatments with patients? Well, that's a, another important point because they, they, they write these things called the standard of care which is the, the blueprint by which you are supposed to treat someone. And if you deviate from the standard of care, you could lose your license to practice medicine. So it's very important for the profession to maintain the guidelines of what the profession states. So a lot of them are locked into this and do not have the flexibility of introducing alternatives. So uh, that's another uh, problem, another uh, a problem right now that should be, the, these standards of care should not be written in granite, like the 10 commandments or something like this. You know, there should be some level of flexibility when something doesn't work, man, try something different, especially if the science doesn't support what you're doing. <laughs> so, so it, it, it just takes, and I understand these guys, they spend a lot of time in in medical school, they they study, they memorize all kinds of stuff, and they're trained to to do all these kinds of things. And then someone comes along and says, "Hey, listen, man, that's not the right thing you should be doing." Well, there's there's some, well, I, they they say, "Well, why am I, why was I educated this way? Why why was I given this kind of misinformation? Not told because you were told cancer was a genetic disease from the time you were in college all the way through medical school. Cancer is a genetic disease, and therefore these are the best treatments to use for this kind of a disorder." Uh, wrong. Somebody's got to start changing that, man. It's not right. The mitochondria. You mentioned it earlier, and clearly it seems to play a very important function. And is it just a fact of aging that I should accept that just as I get older, my mitochondria is going to just get damaged and work uh, not as well as it used to? Is, is that just a, a fact of life? Yes. It's an important <laughs> fact of life. <laughs> You know what it's called, man? It's called entropy. Second law entropy. of thermodynamics, right? Uh, disorder. Uh, 
All right. So uh, uh, it's like the guy pushing the boulder up the hill all his life. Eventually, the boulder wins. You know, the 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 uh, wear and tear. Um, the, the we 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 stay away from equilibrium because we have energy. Uh, energy keeps us alive, and as long as we can make energy, we remain alive. Um, what happens over time is these reactive oxygen species, uh, by wear and tear, gradually, as you just mentioned, yes, they degrade the energy efficiency of mitochondria. You can see myself. I'm not. I'm, I don't look like you anymore. I mean, I'm starting to get old. I said, what the hell's going on here? I'm, I'm approaching equilibrium, man. That's the bottom line. Your mitochondria are running out of juice. Now, um, what, what you, what, but the interesting thing in cancer, man, the, the cancer cells don't use the mitochondria anymore. So they grow indefinitely. They can, as long as they have their fermentable fuels, they can grow forever. And, um, and that's been proven in the, in the culture. And this is the way things were before oxygen came into the planet. The alpha period, according to Albert St. Georgi, uh, who was another Nobel laureate, before oxygen, everything was driven by fermentation and would grow indefinitely until fermentable fuels in the microenvironment disappeared or were reduced, and then everything would die. So in, in our normal cells of our body, as we age, wear and tear happens to the, the energy efficiency. Our energy efficiency goes down. Second law of thermodynamics is entropy, disorder. So more and more disorder comes to the point where people die. They die from just what they call natural causes. Natural causes means your mitochondria ran out of juice. <laughs> One of the things I'd also love to, to ask you is, is either you mentioned kind of cancer being this process of cell division that has gone haywire. And just one thought thing that popped into my mind then is if you were a bigger person, like it could be bigger in terms of width or bigger in terms of height, my assumption as, as a lay person would be that I would have more cells. Thus, does that make it more likely for there to be this breakdown in cell division? I.e., if I'm bigger, do I have more of a chance of, of getting cancer? Well, I, I would think, I don't know about bigger, but uh, obesity is bigger for a relatively comparative analysis. Let's just say uh, obesity has now replaced smoking as, the, as a major risk factor. So wow. um, uh, clearly what is, and not, not I, want, I don't want to say all obese people are at risk for cancer. We know there are some obese people with beautiful blood work. Uh, no diabetes, you know, they, they just happen to be able to carry this excess weight without any undue stress uh, on, on the body. But uh, many people that are obese have other comorbidities like type two diabetes, hypertension, high blood pressure. There's a, there's a lot of different uh, comorbidities that creates metabolic stress on organs and cells. And that can lead to a uh, further damage of oxidative phosphorylation in a particular cell, in a particular organ. Uh, it always has to be chronic damage. It cannot be acute damage. Acutely damaging oxphos kills the cell, just like I said, the cyanide would kill. Well, uh, and, and any kind of insult that would be acute, the cell has no opportunity to slowly adapt to the new restricted energy in the form of fermentation. So obesity creates uh, many different uh, metabolic 
imbalances. In other words, you are away from what we call metabolic homeostasis. This is where all organs and cells are working together in a unified whole of the system. In a very, you can look at blood work and you can, people can know, I feel great. My blood work is great. I'm very healthy in all aspects of my mental and physical uh, performances. Um, when that starts to get uh, compromised by obesity or exposure to chronic chemicals, uh, or exposure to oncogenic viruses. There's a lot of things, intermittent hypoxia, all these things. They damage and they cause damage to the cells and they can lead tend to a chronic replacement of oxidative phosphorylation with substrate level phosphorylation, which is a fermentation metabolism. And that leads to the dysregulated cell growth. And what's more important, the organelle that controls the regulated differentiated state of the cell is the mitochondria. It controls the cell cycle. It controls the behavior of that cell. So when that organelle becomes corrupted, you, the cell has no longer the regulatory control. It grows out of control because the organelle that's supposed to control that now no longer controls that. And the cell now is like ripping, going back the way it was 2.5 billion years ago, creating a microenvironment which is acidified and then you have to uh, recognize that. But you can pull the plug on those things. You can. We, what we find in metabolic therapy Interestingly enough, those folks that have cancer, like Guy Tannenbaum and several others that have type two diabetes and these other kinds of comorbidities, a lot of this goes away in the process of removing the cancer. In the process of targeting the cancer, diabetes goes away, hypertension goes away, high blood pressure goes away, obesity goes away, guy gets real fit again. So, so clearly this is a, a tremendous therapeutic effect not only killing cancer cells, but also enhancing the health and vitality of the rest of the body. It's unbelievable. Yeah, sounds it. And I would just love to ask, because in terms of the metabolic therapies, you mentioned two, you mentioned, um, uh, you know, this water only fast, and you mentioned the keto diet. Is there any data suggesting that one may be more effective than the other? Well, this has come up so many times. You know, when we when we did this originally in the mouse, and we were seeing these phenomenal uh, targeting, killing. We were doing water only. Uh, we were doing calorie restriction, but but a forty percent calorie restriction in the mouse. We were saying, "Wow, look at all this effect." Forty percent. The mouse's basal metabolic rate is seven times faster than that of a human. So a forty. I was saying, "Well, what does a forty percent calorie restriction in a mouse represent to a human?" And then we did this, and we were kind of surprised. And we said, "God, it's it's water only fasting, because of the difference in basal metabolic rate." So in order to get the benefits that we see in this poor mouse, we have to do water-only fasting. And we, we match the glucose ketone ratios in the blood of the human and the mouse. So the 40% calorie restricted mouse, don't forget if you take food, mouse doesn't live but more than five or six days at the most without food. Um, you, you know, that terrible tragedy in, in Northern Ireland uh, with uh, Bobby Sands and Mays, the Mays uh, prison camp there, I know it's highly uh, uh, political thing. But those poor folk, those guys uh, died of starvation, um, and they were without food for up to you know seventy-five to eighty-five days. Um, uh, and none of them, those young Irish guys, were none of them were obese. They were fit young men, and uh, uh, you can see. But uh, Cahill fasted some guy. Actually, there was a uh, uh, Angus Barberry from Scotland uh, fasted one year with water only. Uh, he he was like four or five hundred pounds. And uh, he went for a whole year without without because he stored all that energy is stored. Also, fat stores vitamins, uh, bones store minerals. I mean, your body is 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 
quite efficient at storing energy, minerals, mi macro and micronutrients. So uh, again, you become much fit and healthier when, when you can uh, bring your body back into a state of metabolic homeostasis. To me as a lay person, um, I, I think that if I had cancer, I think the one thing I would be wondering, um, and perhaps maybe a common pushback that you get in terms of, say, for instance, water-only fasting or calorie restrictions, is if that then led to something like muscle deficiency or nutrient deficiency, a weakened immune system, what would that uh, you know, reduce my chances of, of fighting cancer? Or, or how, um, how do you kind of view that one? No, no, uh, 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 very important because Cahill and others have shown that when you start to see nitrogen rise in your blood, see that water-only fasting is, is therapeutic up to a point, and then it enters into the zone of what we call starvation, which is an extremely pathological state. So therapeutic fasting is where your body is regaining its health and strength and vitality. But if you push that too far, and it depends on the age, gender, uh, body weight, mass, all of these things come into play to determine what becomes healthy and, and unhealthy. But I, I want to touch back on what you said about ketogenic diets and what diet, um, because this always is a tremendous point of confusion to a lot of people. Um, and that's why we published and developed the glucose ketone index calculator. It allows us to know when the ratio of glucose and ketones are approximately uni unity in the blood. So uh, um, when we when we found that for cancer patients or people who just want to prevent cancer, if they can get a GKI of 2.0 or below with the Keto Mojo meter, you can buy the meter from Amazon. So all the cancer patients that are doing metabolic therapy all have their meters to know when they're in the state of metabolic nutritional ketosis. Because people say, oh yeah, I, I haven't eaten this. I, I'm in keto. How do you know? Well, I pissed on this uh, strip and it tells me I, I have ketones. And that's true, but it doesn't quantify the blood sugar you, and ketone ratio together. So we measure from the blood, the same, uh, same drop of blood, you can measure ketones and your glucose and get a really good quantitative number. Once the patient, and you can do that on a ketogenic diet, carnivore diet, vegan diet, pescatarian diet, water-only fasting, all of these things can bring you down to a low GKI. Uh, and people come to realize that, oh man, I'm, I can't, it's hard for me to get, if I'm eating these plants. Well, you might want to try to eat some meat and you'll see how fast you can get down there. So again, <laughs> it depends on the person. So um, I don't want to, you know, piss off vegans and carnivore people and they get all angry when you say one thing or another. So I don't care what you eat. See if you can get Mediterranean diets. I mean, see if you can get your GKI down and then you'll come to know, your body will come to know what you can do, what you, what you should and should not eat. So um, again, it becomes ketogenic diet is just one way to get into the zone but you can do it with other ways as well. But you have a quantitative measure to tell you when you're in that zone. When you're in that zone, that's when we, part of the metabolic therapy brings in the drugs uh, that will target glutamine because you can't really do that effectively with good diets. So, but you use the drugs very sparingly and you have to know to doses, timing and scheduling. You have to be very cautious because glutamine is an essential amino acid for the immune system, for the gut, for the urea cycle. Uh, so you can't go in there too aggressively. You really have to understand the biology of the problem uh, and know how to play groups of cells off of each other. This makes it really exciting. 
cancer becomes one of those diseases that there's so beautiful many ways to kill the damn thing uh, without harming the rest of the body. This is, this is the future, man. This is going to be the future. These guys are going to say, man, I can kill these tumor cells. Oh yeah, tell me how you did that. I'm going to show you. I tweak this at this time and you're going to annihilate these tumor cells and the patient's going to feel better when you're doing it. So uh, um, this is the future. It's just that not enough people understand the biology of the problem to, to, to wield the power uh, of these diet drug combos to, to, to uh, wipe out these cancer cells. I had this idea that that perhaps cancers would be different to one another. Um, is that true, or am I am I totally wrong? Well, at at what level are they different from each other? If you uh, look at, if yeah. you look at their genome, their genetics, they're all different from each other. A, a lung cancer is different from a colon cancer is different from a brain cancer because they originated from different cells that were already genetically different from each other. They all have different kinds of mutations. Um, but one thing they all have in common is their mitochondria are dysfunctional and therefore they're forced to ferment. So we found that out for all the blood cancers, uh, CCL, AML, all the different kinds of blood cancers, all the brain cancers, all the lung cancers, all the colon cancers, bladder cancer, breast cancer. They're all, they all ferment. They're all fermenting, but they're all genetically very different from each other. So the field is focusing on the unique genetic differences that all the cells in the tumor have, or from one cancer to another, and they fail to recognize they're all very common in, in their underlying metabolic problem. That's why the system, the, the, that's why the system is, the problem is not as complicated as some people want to make it out to be. I guess, you know, it couldn't kind of be a, a conversation about this uh, without, without this question. Um, what are some of the things that we could do to reduce our risk of getting cancer? Well, we could do a lot of things, uh, but do we do them? Um, the answer is no. <laughs> um, as I said, obesity has now replaced smoking as one of the greatest risk factors. We have an obesity epidemic in the United States, and I think it's growing in other countries as well. So if people were really concerned about preventing cancer, we would not have an obesity epidemic. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be like we see today. Um, uh, but a lot of things in modern society puts us at risk. We have massive amounts of highly processed, poorly nutritious foods that taste so good. Uh, they're convenient for us to eat. Um, uh, we, we sit in traffic, we sit at offices. We don't have the level of exercise that we need to do to keep our mitochondria healthy. Um, so we put ourselves at risk. It's basically our diets and lifestyles and, and our culture that put us at risk for cancer. Aboriginal folks that live by their own ways, cancer is extremely rare uh, uh, along these lines. So, so we've seen this. Um, so to prevent cancer, you must keep your mitochondria as healthy as you can. Water-only fasting, we hate, I mean, it's tough. I'm not saying, man, I'm just saying you got to go out. This is hard. I tried it. You try it. See how, how you like it. We're all addicted to glucose, man. It's like you become, it's very uncomfortable uh, to do water only fasting, but you can do other, other approaches to get your uh, glucose ketone index down. And as long as you can keep your index, GKI down, get exercise, um, you can, you can significantly reduce the risk of cancer by avoiding the so-called cancer risk factors. So uh, chemical carcinogen, but a lot of this we're unaware of because we're not told that some of these things, like if you have a highly processed, 
when you smoke cigarettes, there's this thing on there that says this this product puts you at risk for cancer. Well, they should say the same thing on highly processed packaged foods as well. This eating this packaged food puts you at risk for cancer. <laughs> let's see how that let's see how that goes down, right? <laughs> so uh, these are the things that you need to know. If as long as, but again, scientific literacy goes a long way in in helping you. Yeah, man. Where can these guys connect with you? What would you like our audience to check out? Send them wherever you'd like to. Well, you know, I tell you, uh, the work that we do on a daily basis here at Boston College is supported by by private foundations and um, philanthropy. Uh, there are folks out there that feel they want to be part of this new uh, paradigm revolution. And the movie, The Cancer Revolution, will be coming out uh, in, in the next several months. Uh, it's a documentary that brings together a lot of what I of what I said. Um, so, uh, in fact, we got we got a nice grant from um, the UK Childhood Cancer Foundation. I saw. Congrats. Yeah. yeah. And and we, in fact, my associate Dr. Mukherjee will be presenting the data in London. I think in September, uh, we've we've developed an outstanding model for childhood high grade glioma using diet drug combos that I think is going to be so much better than what we have right now. So we thank the UK Childhood Cancer for supporting us, and we can do a lot more uh, with these new diet drug combos that we're working on. We're finding that certain drugs that have been canned because they were too toxic or ineffective. Uh, we're actually re retrieving those drugs and showing how powerful they can be when used in the appropriate uh, context. And that paper is out in bioarchives, so people can look at that. And and everything that I've said to you appears in our scientific publications. So if people want to double check and fact check all the things that I've just indicated, they can do that. Type my name in and just put publications and you'll see open access publications people are free to read the details of what i'm saying everything discussed will be linked below man the question we ask before we sign off all of our podcasts the final question is what makes a life worth living i i think um mental and physical health i think if you are mentally comfortable in your own shell. I think if you're physically uh, uh, unencumbered by ailments, uh, again, uh, you feel good about yourself, you feel good about your your, bio, your body, and you're comfortable in different uh, social groups. Um, in other words, you, 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 you enjoy every day you get up, you enjoy the breath that you take into your lungs because you can't wait for the, the events of the day to take place. So, um, and I, and I think you got to just hang on to that as long as you can. And I know it's not easy. Life is life is a bitch, man. It, it, you, you get you get you get cold cocked every turn every time you turn a corner. There's some this this unsettling thing. But a lot of these things will pass in time, and you just hope you can stay healthy as long as you can. At least I do. So uh, and I'm not retiring anytime soon. Uh, as they say here in Boston, we're just getting started. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man i've loved speaking to you so much uh, everything discussed today will, will, will be linked below and uh yeah man this is such a pleasure okay take it easy thank you very much